0: Our second reading tonight is from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 to 20. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment, instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolatrous nor adulterous, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, Honour God with your body. In
1: the 1983 film Scarface, Al Pacino plays Cuban refugee Tony Montana, whose philosophy of life is summed up in his advice to his friend. I'm not going to try and do the accent. In this country, you've got to make the money first. Then wait. when you make the money, you get the power. And when you've got the power, then you get the woman. Money, sex and power were what drove Tony Montana and the arguably three of the most powerful driving forces in the world. Christian author Richard Foster said that no issues touch us more profoundly or universally. No topics cause more controversy. No human realities have greater power to bless or curse. No three things have been more sought after or are in more need of a Christian response. Ends his book by that very title, Money, Sex and Power. And these are the three things that Paul grapples with in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because there were those within the church who were saying, Jesus is Lord. Yet behind that declaration of allegiance and worship and loyalty, in reality, it was money, sex and power that were getting them out of bed in the morning and back into bed again at the end of the day. Their overriding concern for money was apparent in their readiness to take other members of the church to court to resolve financial disputes. Somewhere along the line there were accusations that a crime had been committed or a fraud had taken place, someone had robbed somebody else of money and the whole thing had gone to court to sort it out. Paul's appalled. This is catastrophic. It was bad enough that accusations of wrongdoing were being banded around at all. But to wash the church's dirty laundry in public by taking the matter before a secular court, this was the last straw. Part of the problem was that in such courts there was never any real guarantee of justice being delivered because the judges were not above being bought and sold by the people with the right amount of money or social influence. So, in effect, you never took a social superior to court because the chances of your winning were practically nil. And in practice, that meant that the courts easily ended up simply providing a legal channel for the rich and powerful to bully those beneath them in the social ladder and extort money from them. And that may have been actually what was happening in the Church of Corinth. That might be explaining in part why Paul is quite so scathing as he addresses the Corinthians on this. You would have done better, he says, to take this... Issue to people of no account in the church? Is there not someone who's really despised within the church? Couldn't you have gone to them to resolve this issue? Wouldn't that have been better than going before the unbelievers? Justice would have been better served if the matter had been arbitrated even by the most insignificant person in the church. You pride yourselves so much on your wisdom. Was there really nobody wise enough in church to be appointed to deal with this matter? You cannot convey adequately enough just how scathing Paul is. Instead of dealing with it themselves, they were referring the matter to ungodly, wicked and unrighteous judges who would not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul runs through a fairly standard, stereotypical catalogue of the vices of the ancient world. These are the people you're going to for justice, he says. Look at them. He mentions all the people, the ungodly of the world. Sexual will uh, get the right list, Carter Um end of Chapter six. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God, but they are the people you are going to for justice. Where is the logic in that? He asks. You would have noticed, of course, I, I read the list quickly, but it won't have escaped you that uh, male prostitutes and homosexual offenders were mentioned in the list. That's a topical issue at the moment. There is no doubt, I think, that Paul was opposed to homosexuality and regarded it as a sin. And for many people, that's enough. That's the full stop, and that's, that's all you need to know. Others debate about the meaning of the words. The, the, the translation, male prostitute, is a bit contentious there. That's one way of reading the language. Others would say, well, actual fact, you know, what Paul had in his sights there is light years removed from the kind of loving, committed homosexual relationships that the government had in mind when they passed the recent votes on gay marriage. He's not addressing the same issue at all. And clearly we could spend the rest of the evening thinking about that, uh, but I'm not going to. I realise that makes nobody happy at all. Sorry about that. But that, that, that misses the point, actually, of what Paul is talking about here. Because this point, is he lists 10 characteristics that for him identify the world as a godless and a wicked place. And he expresses incredulity that they are looking for justice from such people. Those within the church might have been like this in the past, he says, but now you have been washed clean, you have been made holy, you have been put right with God through baptism in the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You belong to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God belongs to you. But despite this, it was money rather than the kingdom of God that was the be-all and the end-all and the driving force in their lives. And Paul saw conclusive proof of this in their readiness to take each other to court. Their priorities were wrong. In God's kingdom, those within the church, he says, will one day sit in judgment on the world and on angels. That is, that is the level of exaltation and power and authority that we will have in God's kingdom. And yet here you are submitting to the judgment of the world on financial matters. Totally upside down and back to front. They had lost the plot. They were spiritually and morally bankrupt. And perhaps unfairly, since he wasn't the one out of pocket, he says you would have done far better just to swallow the loss. You've been cheated, okay, put up with the fact you've been cheated. You've been wronged, okay, put up with the fact that you've been wronged. That would be better than going before the secular courts to try and sort it out there. What he really can't get his head around is the fact that they're the ones doing the wronging and the cheating. Where does that come from? in those who belong to God's kingdom. Quite simply, their behaviour was indicating that for all they were saying, Jesus is Lord, the reality was that money in their pockets was the most important thing. And that needed addressing. And Paul tackles it here. Jesus was not Lord of their financial affairs, nor was he Lord particularly of their bodies. They weren't drawing any distinction between physical hunger and sexual uh, desire. Both were bodily appetites that needed fulfilling, and it didn't matter what you did with your body, since God wasn't bothered. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. God's going to destroy them both anyway, so, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat. And by extension, it doesn't matter who you sleep with. In terms of their priorities, what made them tick? Money was up there, and sex was up there, right alongside it. And they hadn't figured out that to say Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is Lord over our bodies as well. They were wrong to suppose that just because the physical body is mortal and temporary doesn't matter what you do with it. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised the physical body of Jesus. And thereby he showed that it's also these physical bodies that will be raised and transformed at the resurrection, so that they are no longer mortal and destined for death, but immortal and destined for eternal life. And yes, these bodies are subject to illness and sickness and disease and decay and all this kind of stuff, but nevertheless, it is these bodies that will be raised, these bodies that will be transformed, these bodies that God will restore to us again. So what we do in these bodies does count. God does not regard them as being simply disposable and of no consequence. On the contrary, his intention to raise these bodies to life again means that we need to recognise that our bodies belong to him. And what we do in our bodies matters to him. And it's not just that these bodies are destined for resurrection. Christ indwells these bodies by the Holy Spirit. We are united with him spiritually. That means, as Maria preached so well a few weeks ago, that means that the, the limbs and organs of our body are in effect the limbs and organs of Christ Himself. Christ indwells us. These bodies are united spiritually with Christ. How, he says, how can you think of being physically one with a prostitute when you are spiritually one with Christ? That's just not a connection that you can even think of making, joining Christ to a prostitute. If Christ lives in you, your body is his temple and having sex with a prostitute would profane that temple in a way that nothing else can quite do to the same extent. Jesus is Lord over our bodies and what we do with them. Christ died on the cross to redeem you, to buy you back for God, to claim you as God's property. You're not a free agent. He paid the ultimate price for you. Think of what his body went through on the cross for your redemption. So honour God with your body, says Paul. And behind their preoccupation with money and sex lay the Corinthians' love of power. Money buys power. And those who are powerful can use money to achieve their purposes. In the ancient world as today, sex is often used as a way of asserting your power over somebody else. And the Corinthians were in to power. They clearly thought that they had power over their own bodies, to do with as they pleased. Everything is permissible to me, was their slogan. doesn't matter what I do. There are no laws to keep. I can do what I like. But the attitude that says I can do what I want is always one as well that ultimately seeks domination over others as well. Because if I'm going to do what I want that what I want is more important than what you want, and therefore I have to assert my power over you to get my way. If my authority to live my life as I choose is paramount, then there will inevitably be times when that conflicts with what somebody else wants, and a power struggle is inevitable. The emphasis was all on the power, and not on the submission and the love. And in Corinth this power struggle was finding expression through litigation in the courts and their preoccupation with power to do as they wanted was leading them to use and exploit the bodies of other people for their own satisfaction. And all this focus upon their own power was making their declaration that Jesus is Lord look increasingly hollow. The trouble with money, the trouble with sex, the trouble with power, is that once you start to pursue them, once they become the driving forces in your life, it becomes increasingly hard to find a place of contentment. If money is your goal, you will never have enough. You will never reach a point where you think, I've got enough, I'm content now. Because there's always, you you know, the more you have, the harder it is to part with a significant amount of what you have, if it's that important to you. It is a, a never-ending process of reaching the point where you think, I've got enough. If you make money your goal, if it is the be or the end of your life, you will never be satisfied. It's, if sex is your thing, then the pursuit of physical pleasure becomes increasingly vain. As a sex alone, abstracted from loving, committed relationships, becomes increasingly unsatisfying and unfulfilling as time goes by.
2: If power
1: is your thing, and it's the important, the important is the ways and means by which you can control and dominate those around you, then recognize that you will become increasingly unpleasant as a person as you pursue that goal of exerting your power over, the ra- over those around you. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's an absolutely true saying. The truth is, if you want to embrace money and sex and power as the goals of your life, they will end up driving you. You will lose control over them and the contentment you seek will prove to be elusive. Paul says that Christ has set us free. Christ has brought us into his kingdom. Christ gives us control over our lives. Christianity is not a simple list of do's and don'ts so that carefully observing this or that religious routine will see you right in the end. No, it is about saying and meaning Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over my finances. Jesus is Lord over my body and what I do with it. Jesus is Lord over my life so I am prepared to submit to others and serve them rather than seeking to dominate or control them. And, and, and if Christianity were a simple list of do's and don'ts, it would be dead easy to do that. right? Some bits would be harder other than others. But at least we all know where we stood. To say Jesus is Lord is far harder to work out in practice what that means. But it goes far deeper. Because it's not a matter of simply saying, well, I've done that religious perseverance, I've, I've done this and I've done that. Because it goes right to the heart and the core of who we are. Jesus is Lord over what I think and how I feel, over whom I am on the inside. That's what it's supposed to be about. And it means we can't compartmentalise our lives and say Jesus is Lord of this bit, but not of that bit. It is all or nothing. If Christ sets me free from a religious observance which is essentially all about just keeping a list of rules, what does it mean in practice for me to live my life in this body, in this world, under the Lordship of Christ? What does it mean to, for me to engage in financial tax actions? How I spend my money? What does it mean for me to live in relationship with other people? where well, there's always a little bit of argy-bargy about who gets their own way. What does it mean for me to say and mean Jesus is Lord in that situation? And it's hard to work out in practice. But it's what we are called to do. Paul gives us a couple of rules of thumb. You can say everything is permissible, everything is lawful for me, I can do what I like, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that, that's one key rule. If if I pursue money, am I losing control over how much I want? Am I in control of what I'm doing with my body? Am I in control of how I respond to this person? Or am I actually kind of behaving in an unchristian way, because the relationship isn't right. You can say everything is permissible, but you need to be in control of who you are in your life. I will not be mastered by anything. Self-control is God's gift. And if you feel that slipping away, because money or sex or power have become too important to you, it's time to get on your knees and put Jesus back in charge of these aspects of your life again. Because when Jesus is Lord, self-control is is his gift. When we snatch the Lordship of our lives away from him and start to pursue these other things, a sure sign that something is wrong is when we begin to lose self-control. So, what's right for you may not be right for somebody else. What's right for somebody else may not be right for you. If you start to do what somebody else does and you start to lose control of your life because of it, then that is a no-go area for you. Because you should not be mastered by anything. The second one is, uh, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Not everything is helpful to me or or to other people. I might be allowed to do this, but I know that if I I go there, if I I have a drink in that pub, or I watch that kind of film, or I read that kind of book, or I go with those kind of people, I know it is going to do me harm. I know that my spiritual life suffers as a result of that. So it might be okay, it might be perfectly acceptable. But nevertheless, I recognise that actually it's not good for me. Or what about other people? If I behave in this kind of way, it might be okay, but what about the knock-on impact of that on the lives of those around me? Is this or that course of action helpful to me and others, or is it destructive? That's another test. What effect does it have on me and those around me? And as we seek to live our lives... As we seek to live a life that is right in a world that is wrong, where there are so many grey areas, where so many opinions differ on what it is okay or what it is not okay to do, then I will use the freedom Christ gives me responsibly. I will say, yeah, technically anything is lawful for me, but I will recognise and avoid any form of behaviour that means I lose my self-control. I will recognise and avoid any form of behaviour that causes me or those around me harm. I instead will embrace and pursue a lifestyle that benefits me and others. And it doesn't matter what other people do. All the time we kind of take our boat, well, so-and-so does that, it must be alright. No, what counts is what you do. What it means for Jesus to be Lord of your life. And what is right for them may not be right for you. Christ sets you free to live your life for Him. You are not bound by other people's expectations. You're not bound to follow their example. You're not bound to follow the crowd. You are required to be responsible. So, is this good for me and for those around me? Am I able to exercise self control in this area? Does it do me good? Does it do those around me good? These are the questions we're required to ask as we try and work out in practice what it means to say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my finances when it comes to acquiring money, spending money, saving money, giving money. Money will not be the be-all and end-all. It might make the world go round, but not my world, because my world is centred on Jesus Christ, his kingdom and his priorities. And I won't put money before my relationships with those around me. When it comes to sex, I'll recognise that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as such, I will not engage in casual sexual encounters, but will honour God by reserving sexual activity for a stable, committed relationship in which God is honoured. Relationship which is marriage by any other name. When it comes to power, I recognise that Jesus is Lord That means that Christian life isn't about a long list of do's and don'ts, a list of rules to keep. It's about living my life for him. Dedicating my body to him. Using my money for him. Empowered to live my life for Jesus and his kingdom. Power to him, not to me.
2: Jesus is Lord, not just here on a Sunday, but everywhere, every day. That's the life God calls us to live in his service. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us that so often other things take pride of place in our lives rather than you. Help us to work out in practice what it means for us to to say Jesus is Lord at work. At home, in our leisure, in our spending, in our relationships, in our bodies. May you be glorified not just by what we sing, but how we live.